Well, welcome everybody. On behalf of the Trotter family, I want to thank you all for coming here today and for the many others that are joining us online. Today's a sad day as we lay to rest our dear brother and friend, Mark Trotter. God gave Mark 64 years on this earth, which he lived to the fullest and for which we are all eternally grateful. First Baptist Church is honored to host Mark's memorial service. As Mark has said many times that he wanted to complete his earthly pilgrimage back here in New Philadelphia. Today you're gonna to be hearing from Mark's son-in-law, Justin Higginbotham, one of Mark's closest personal friends, Pastor Brett Bartlett, and finally from Mark's son, Justin. I'd like for us to begin this morning just with a time of prayer, so let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to even understand and fathom how it's possible that we're here today for this occasion. But truly, Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for the gift it was the life of a man that you touched and used in such extraordinary ways. And I pray, Lord, that these short minutes that we have together, I, I know it's never enough to describe and communicate the impact that you have made in all of our lives through one choice servant, Mark Trotter. But I pray that what is said, what is sung, would be honoring to you. And that's what Mark would want as well. So bless us, bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want to thank everyone here for bearing this heavy burden with our family. Your outpouring of love and prayers has been nothing short of amazing. And even though we're deeply saddened, we also want everyone to know that we're comforted that Mark is on his face worshiping the Lord, the one he was always most passionate about. When he talked to us before surgery, he said that he wanted us um, to keep praying for a miracle, but also reminded us of the fact that that's not always the way that God works. He wanted to make sure that we were also praying for God's will to be done. And even though we don't fully understand why God took Mark home so early, we know that God understands. And we will continue to pray that God's will would be done and that he would receive the maximum glory from this. I feel like I can identify with almost everyone here today by saying that Mark Trotter has had an impact on my life more than words will ever describe. The only difference between me and you is that I was blessed enough to fall in love with JC and get adopted into the Trotter family and was able to get a sneak peek into Mark Trotter's life outside of ministry. And let me tell you, it was an absolute astonishing thing to watch. People have often asked me through the years, what's it like being Mark Trotter's son-in-law? Is he this passionate, crazy, and loving all the time? Well, I'm here to tell you that he absolutely was. And he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. 
every single day. Was Mark perfect? No, he would be the first one to admit that. But he was a man worth following. In his own words, he was just a street urchin from Miami. <laughs> but God was able to use him in a mighty way because he was unwavering in his faith until the day he passed. He loved people, loved God, and loved his word passionately. He was a true hero in the faith and left a legacy for the kingdom that will echo into eternity. Just being around Mark made you want to be more like Christ, and because of that, most of us are. Mark had an infectious sense of humor, and I could go on and on with stories, but I won't because there's too many. However, I will greatly miss the good-natured bantering back and forth at the dinner table, in the gym, driving in the car. It really didn't matter where we were. We were always looking for an opportunity to throw a one-liner at each other and then laugh our heads off. <clears throat> and I will never forget JC and I's first date. She invited me to join the whole family, along with family friends, on a jet for a quick trip to Columbus. In hindsight, I cannot believe that I agreed to do this as an 18-year-old punk. <laughs> I can just remember thinking that this girl is smoking hot and I'll get to fly on a jet. <laughs> we didn't have Facebook back then, so I didn't really know what her dad looked like. I'd visited the church growing up, but you know, have no real recollection. I can just remember arriving at the airport here in New Philly and seeing Jay-Z and then seeing this dude beside her who was jacked and thinking, <laughs> oh crap, what did I get myself into? <laughs> Even though he puffed his chest out a little bit further that day, he welcomed me with open arms. Mark's Christ-like example of er earthly relationships was astounding, and it started right in the home. Sherry, thank you for loving and treating me like your own. It has been an absolute blessing witnessing the love you and Mark had for each other. Thank you for the Christ-like marriage that you put on display for me each and every day. I love you dearly. Justin, your dad was your hero, and I love seeing the admiration you had for him every time you saw him and the love that he had for you. I've heard you say, when you were talking about your dad he's a great preacher but he's an even better dad that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around but it's a hundred percent true thank you for sharing your dad with me bro Morgan I still remember when Justin brought you to Columbus for us to meet you for the first time Mark said when you and Judd weren't around she's the one and you were and he has loved you ever since. You are a true servant, just like Mark was, and it was fun to watch you guys together. Babe. I've never witnessed a greater relationship between a daughter and her daddy than I did with you and your daddy. To see the respect that you had for him was incredible. I will never forget 
the words you said to me after I proposed to you. It wasn't yes. It was, did you ask my dad first? <laughs> and then finally, a yes. That was an incredibly special moment and seemed so small. But it was an insight into an incredible relationship that I was about to witness over the next 16 years. I thank God every day for you for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that I got to be a part of your family. People often say that when you marry a woman, you marry their family. And in this case, it was life-changing for me because of your dad and the rest of your family. Papa. Thank you. Thank you for your incredible impact on my life. Thank you for not only caring deeply for your daughter, but also for my soul. I was a lost 19-year-old kid who had so masterfully faked his way at being a Christian for over a year into my relationship with JC that even you couldn't believe it. But you started noticing red flags in our relationship and I and you advised her that I wasn't the one. She respected and admired you so much that she agreed to break it off and told me that we wouldn't be able to continue our relationship until I met with you. I reluctantly agreed and definitely didn't understand at the time. I was sure that I would hear you talk about how I need to treat and love your daughter and then life would go on. I was in for a surprise and in total shock when you started talking. You never once asked or counseled me about my relationship with Jay-Z. You were only concerned about my relationship with Jesus. And after walking through God's word, I was saved there on the spot. I'm forever grateful to you for your faithfulness to the Lord. Thank you for giving me your daughter in marriage. The day I asked for your permission to marry JC was one of the scariest days of my life. <laughs> the wedding day was an absolutely joyful day for me and for you as well. But it was also incredibly sad. As I saw the look in your eye when you gave her away, knowing that you wouldn't be the man leading and guiding her through life anymore. I never took that responsibility lightly and I will continue to lead her as Christ has called me to do. Thank you for fervently praying for my dad's salvation over the years and for being the first to call me after my dad passed a year and a half ago. I can't tell you how encouraging you were to me as you stayed on the phone praying over me before I walked into the hospital. You and Sherry drove right up and you walked side by side with me as I was dealing with it all. I will always remember the sound of pure joy in your voice when I told you that he gave his life to the Lord the day he died. Please tell him love. Thank you for the last text that you sent me before you passed. I will carry those words with me the rest of my life. You have always verbalized your love for me over the years, but it hit me 
in a different way this time. It read, Justin, I love you like a son. I appreciate how you have always respected Sherry and I and how much you love and take care of Jay-Z and the boys. You are a great man, and I love you with all of my heart. Papa, thank you for loving and investing in my boys the way you did. It was truly a sight to behold. You would always drop everything you were doing just to spend time with them. They were a priority, and thank you for making that clear to them. The amount of time you spent with them at the park was unbelievable. I will never forget the sound of them screaming as you were chasing them around or laughing as you were pushing them in the swing. It would go on and on until you physically couldn't do it anymore. But you didn't care because you loved to see the joy on their face. The imprint you left on my boys will last their entire life. I just wish it could have lasted a little, a little longer. Finally, thank you for loving the Lord the way you did. I have never witnessed a man love the Lord the way you have and serve as faithfully as you have from the day you were saved until you passed into eternity. God used you to change my life and countless other lives. The fruit you were able to produce in such a short time here on earth won't fully be known until the day we're raptured. But I'm certain that it is going to be magnificent. You often said that you were, if you were on your deathbed and you had the chance to tell us one last thing, it would be to walk in the spirit. Even though you didn't actually get a chance to say those words when you left this earth, that is exactly what we will seek to do the rest of our lives. songs isn't yours I just listen to it on my iPod all the time I just listen to it one time right after the other it makes me talk like this hey there my name's Jimmy Bobby and Pastor Harold has asked me to take you on location today to my workplace because he said he thought people might really be able to learn a lot from my testimony at work and you know I don't blame him really because I can just tell you this in all humility, I'm just a witnessing machine for Jesus. I mean, I'm just like out there totally pulling the trigger for Jesus and leaving the body count to God. You know what I'm saying? What if Michael Jordan moved on the inside of me 
And now it was no longer Mark Trotter bouncing the ball, dribbling the ball, but it was Michael Jordan in me, and it was Michael Jordan using my body to play the game of basketball. Do you, do you understand what that might look like? Do you understand how different that might be? Half a cup? <laughs> Who in the world eats a half a cup of ice cream? Listen, if you're going to be making a special Sunday, you certainly don't want to follow the serving size that's on the container. And I noticed Mark had this wild-eyed look on his face. It was like he was hearing a voice, somebody else's voice outside of the meeting. I mean, almost, uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And all of a sudden, I, I looked down at the other end of the table, and he stood to his feet uh, and was answering the call. These ain't men. This is what we call women. And they smell pretty, and they look pretty, but they're ruthless and relentless. They eat lightning, and they bite thunder. I'm telling you, I'm just a witnessing machine for Jesus. Beyond the high 
The year is 1978. It is a dark, late October evening in Springfield, Missouri. In a side corridor of a massive brown barn known as High Street Baptist Church stands a solitary, bemused, and self-satisfied child. Proudly adorned in a red vest, this very picture of purity is quietly singing to himself, We are sparks for Jesus, sparks to light the world. We will shine for Jesus. Blithely unaware of the evil lurking just around the corner, as he waits to relish in whatever honor is to be conferred upon a young Baptist lean for having completed the bronze-crowned track of Scripture memory in the Awana Club's program. This precious moment of the unsullied stripling is interrupted by the muffled sound of bare feet padding toward him from behind. In the corner of his eye, he catches a blur of lime green. Something is askew. The hapless darling's heart races. He wheels and in feverish disbelief finds himself gaping into the monstrous maw of his greatest fear to ever emerge from 70s television. The Incredible Hulk himself. (laughs) Now, I won't tell you who this unfortunate child was. I have made a deal with him to keep his identity a secret. But I have it on good authority that this harrowing account is both true enough and may have even caused the loss of what many might deem vital function. Having said that, I can tell you that that kid today is still a Baptist, though I don't know how. Still hates the Incredible Hulk. And though he is now a pastor in southeast Michigan, still refuses to let his children's counselors dress up for Halloween at church. (laughs) Mark was the strongest man I ever knew as a child. And ironically, he became the strongest man of God that I ever knew in my life. The very picture of a bridegroom, a strong man coming forth to receive a bride. Oddly enough, when my wife was very young. She had the privilege of being the flower girl for Mark and Sherry's wedding. From that moment on, Sherry was to Kim the absolute perfect bride. And as Kim got older, she understood Sherry to be the absolute perfect picture of the bride of Christ. And were it not for that, there would not have been the phenomenon that we all now know to be Mark Trotter. Four years ago, I was driving down some dusty road in Malawi, Africa. Mark sitting in the back, crunched in between two people. I, up front, with my own seat, with the air conditioning blasting straight in my face. (laughs) That's sort of a prerequisite for me when I travel with the other pastors. 
And by the way, if you've never had the privilege of doing mission trips with me, just ask the pastors. I am a delight. <laughs> we were singing all at once as Mark started to hum the tune. We both broke out in a Beatles song. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64. Never imagining that if the Lord should tarry us coming, Mark would but barely reach that age. You know, I'm, 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 just, I'm just an old fundy that hangs out with guys who aren't. I've tried to pretend not to be. I'm, I'm, I'm Baptist born and Baptist bred. And, and, and when I die, homeboy will be Baptist dead. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, as big of a deal as that might be to some people, if I'm going to be honest, Wildswood Baptist Church, it isn't a Baptist church. If Mark Trotter were a denomination, Wildwood should truly be called Wildwood Mark Trotter Church. Because every aspect of both feel and design and goal and infrastructure of my ministry was given to me directly by a man named Mark Trotter. And it is impossible for me to deal with what is actually happening were it not for this. A question that the Lord asked me through his word the day after Mark died. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And it's very difficult to come to the conclusion that this is right. I want to talk to you about why that may be. Proverbs chapter 26 and 7 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. The just man walketh in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Mark's life taught me, taught us all, that there are considerable differences distinguishing character from reputation and perception. A man is not what others say of him. That's reputation. Or what he thinks and says about himself. That's perception are more accurately stated in many cases, projection or delusion. Rather, a man is what he is. Therefore, his character is what he is in the sight of God and that alone. Only oneself can damage that. Character is the stamp on our souls left of the free will decisions we make in this life, which unlike sepulchers cannot be whitewashed. Reputations and perceptions are for time. Character is for eternity. As it is the stuff of the kingdom of God, it necessarily follows that one can possess and exercise this strength of true, genuine character only to the degree he submits his life and members and faculties to the power and glory of God, only as he is yielded to the Spirit of Christ against all the might of temporal allurements, carnal dalliances, and penchants for pernicious pursuits. Through small, unseen duties, faithfully and consistently discharged, self-denial, self-sacrifice, fervent charity for the brethren, 
denying pragmatism and opportunism for dedication to a doctrinal or philosophical or moral core or to the idea of the syntax preservation of Scripture, presenting your life and body as a vessel of righteousness, a living sacrifice which is dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God. Character, what God says you are, is comprised glacially over the span of your life which will according to whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Savior eventually will be a tale that is told in the venue of one judgment or another. How does one encapsulate the life and ministry of such a man and do justice to such a venerated elder? For which aspect of his personality will you remember most? His, his infectious laugh, our predilection for capriciously singing and dancing to Sly and the Family Stone, so help me. Somebody hit the bottom. When I think of missions, I think of that line. That's because I did missions with Mark Trotter. Will it be his matchless preaching and passion, his godly wisdom and counsel, his undying loyalty, his seemingly endless capacity for condescending to men of lower estate? For he was certainly notable in all of the aforementioned, but I will remember him for being the penultimate husband and father, the exemplary and sample by which to pattern our most vital human relationships. Mark had an uncanny ability to communicate and overlay biblical strategies for cultivating our noblest sensibilities and directing our Christ-like passions in such a manner that our homes could be transformed into the very vestibules of heaven. Unsullied by the ravages of overbearing authority or unrealistic expectation, unmarred by serious and consistent moral failure, nor crowded out by the daily grind of the vicissitudes of life. To this end, Mark served as a veritable home stager who discipled men, many of whom he would receive no earthly benefit for having so helped to furnish their homes with all precious and pleasant riches. There is a largely unseen aspect to Mark's legacy which we would be remiss to not recognize at this hour. For adding to this propitious enumeration of ministry accomplishments would be this. Simply, Mark Trotter salvaged untold marriages and ministries. including those of his eulogizer. Mark both understood and consistently conveyed to those that he discipled that we should be living our lives now from the perspective of as we will see it standing before the Bema seat of the judgment seat of Christ. Owing to this, Mark understood the value of time. <clears throat> that was Mark's real enemy. He was able to sanctify time from the word of God and the many splendored gifts which are incumbent with the new birth, seeing it by far and away as our most precious commodity. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 reads, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. <clears throat> See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. <clears throat> Mark taught me that time can be redeemed. 
A perusal through practically any anthology of literature and poetry would demonstrate that the subject of time is the dominant theme of Western, if not universal, romantic verse and sentiment. Winning by a little more than a nose among a strong field of love, death, triumph, and tragedy is this beguiling friend to the healthy and young and menacing foe to the sick and old. There is an adage among the Pennsylvania Dutch, a right verse and well-framed, that we get too soon old and too late smart. Applied to the physical and temporal, this realization are its like is possibly the first moment of responsible, mature spiritual cognizance. In his epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul admonishes believers to be industrious with this thrifty, <clears throat> uh, uh, industrious and thrifty with this intangible raw material if we would value eternity. It is evident that what one makes of time is inexorably bound to their perspective, be it worldly or heavenly. Whereas the world romanticizes time, the Bible views it with pensive and somber composition. We have not the ability to say, as Joshua of old, Son, stand thou still in Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. Rather, the efficacy we exercise over time is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection according to the scriptures. With it, although we cannot subdue its course, even greater, we can glean than the intervals between the relentless dropping of the sands and the hourglass, crowns of eternal joy to lay at molten, brazen feet of Jesus Christ, the High King of Heaven. Mark saw that a child of God can harness time in Congress with the excellent knowledge of the true riches of the hidden wisdom of Scripture to redeem what has been wasted by trading in those things which moths eat and rust corrupts and where thieves break through and steal for an inheritance incorruptible which fadeth not away. The consistent exposure to an intimate friendship with Mark Trotter was mysteriously an unspoken demand to assess whether or not we are using time to suffer incalculable loss or win inestimable gain. A glorious entrance into his kingdom and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. But make no mistake, whatever we choose to do with it, the dance of time goes on. Secular poets meticulously attempting to present the promenade in rosy forms, garlanded with glee, trimmed with warm hearts, rosy cheeks, and youthful clasped hands. And so the dance may seem at times. Yet as Sherry and JC and Justin would attest, if you would have spent the past few weeks partaking in the bittersweet task of standing sentinel over the brave and glorious example of Mark's sequential passing from this thing we call time into what Bible calls eternity, you would have noted a rather conspicuous absence of a blushed hue above his jaw. Or that green, gleeful garlands had given way to black, broken branches. There was neither mirth nor melody, save a noiseless, mournful dirge accompanying the putting off of this earthly tabernacle as he rattled out his final ghost-like breath. Such is the physical reality of the sin-tainted dance of life, a reality God seeks not in any way to hide from us. It exposes the folly and madness of rebellion and sin, that every dissipation of youth must be paid for by a draft on old age, and that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. As Paul said, the days are evil, and for the very reason they are evil, they can be redeemed. The days are evil because the devil is evil, 1 John 3, 12, 
This present world is evil, Galatians 1.4. Religion is evil, James 1.27. Men are evil, 2 Timothy 3.13. This time is evil, Micah chapter 2 and verse 3. Our lives appear and dissipate as a vapor. Yesterday cannot be assured. Today alone is ours. A gift from God. Whether saved or lost, if it is squandered through vanity, apathy, or lethargy, it is wasted forever. But God has given us his word to let us know that though sin abounds in our time, grace does much more abound. That though time cannot be reclaimed, it indeed can be redeemed. And though the outward perishing of the body is a horrible sight indeed, and a dreadful prospect, it can still be said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How? How, how? how can this be precious? How can broken black branches and withered green garlands, how can ghost-like breaths and broken-hearted families be precious? Because God seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart on the inside. And so while we see the outward man perishing, the believer in Christ experiences the inward man renewed day by day. By faith, those who have been redeemed are able to both reflect on and experience death as a new creature created in Christ Jesus. Without him, death is alarming. It is dreadful. It is the very terror of nature. But in Jesus Christ, even death, especially death, is fair and lovely. It is pure and holy. It is the joy of saints. On the final day that Jeff and I visited Mark about a month ago, the very end of that last day, he began to get a headache. And that was really the last day that somebody could have hung out with the trot dog. And so we decided to go after we ate, we decided to walk down some side street in Georgia into an antique mall, or an antique store rather, and we were just trying to kill some time. I, I don't exactly know what we were doing there other than I, I think we might have been entertaining me. I think it was my idea to go to the antique store. It was evident that Mark was not feeling well towards the end of our time in there, and Jeff said, we need to get out of here. On the way out, there was a stack of vinyl. And we sort of sifted through the vinyl, and Jeff and Mark were talking, and tucked between a, a Leonard Skinnerd album and I think a Bread album. was a vinyl album of Johnny Harlow's High Street Harvesters Quartet. High Street Baptist Church. And I showed it to Mark. And he went. No way, bro. 
And, and, and so he, he, he grabs it and he flips it over and he puts his finger. He knew the album. And he pointed to himself and he pointed to Frankie. And he said, the next year, Sherry would stand right next to me. And we sang every song on this album. Jeff and I side hustle at some Target to get some record player. And we go back to their house. And Sherry's putting the album on. And I'm telling you, you had to be there. She plays the album. And as soon as the first song comes on, I found the happy side of life. She jumps in his lap and they're singing and they remember all the parts. And Mark gives his testimony on the album, talking about the, the tough week that he had and he needs the happy side of life. And I asked Mark, what was the tough week? What was the thing that you were talking about? And he looked at me and he went, your dad fired me. Ah, yes. <laughs> to see Mark and Sherry transported to 20 years old in that living room in that moment was, it was one of the sweetest memories of my life. And I started thinking about that cheese ball song, and I'm sorry, Sherry, but that is a cheese ball song. <laughs> I, I, I love you, but I mean, okay, so you, we're, we're tracking there. <laughs> Can I say horribly cheesy? <laughs> it dawned on me that because of the ministry that was Mark and Sherry Trotter, side of life because where my marriage and where my ministry was headed before before he stepped in I shudder to think and on that day as we began to sort of awkwardly bring up the fact that we all wanted to pray, Mark just stopped us before we prayed and said, if you're going to pray for me, pray this and this alone. That none of these things would move me, neither would I count my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace of God. Having accepted his inevitable fate trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea, Mark did the only thing he could do. He marched to the sea expecting nothing less than to see the salvation of the Lord promised him through the gospel. A busy but invisible and noiseless industry had begun. The comforter was giving the finishing touches to the good work he began in Mark at redemption. 
making him the heir of glory, meet for a home above the sea called Crystal on the sides of the north. In the waning hours of Mark's 64th birthday, the final signal was given. The portal opened. The now numb and paralyzed body feels the burst of blessedness as his rigid features give way to a smile. He sees no longer as through a glass darkly, none other, none other than that captain who has never lost a battle, that advocate who has never lost a case, that great physician who has never lost a patient, that bishop and shepherd of souls who has never lost a sheep, now and at last face to face, leaving the vision pictured on his pale but placid brow. How well he fell asleep. Like some great river reflecting the golden light of the sun above, silently joining the fathomless sea from whence it came, calmly and grandly, silently and deep, Mark Trotter moved beyond the veil, joining eternity. O earth so full of dreary noises, O men with wailing in your voices, O delved gold, the wailer's heap, O strife, O curse that o'er it all, God grants great peace through it all and giveth his beloved sleep. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Because the love and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ wrought through faith in his word, Mark Trotter leaves behind a legacy greater than himself and a ministry and an influence that will far outlast his earthly toil. For although he was the Hulk, the trot dog, the perfectionist, the rapper, the bodybuilder, the pimp limp, <laughs> the one-man boy band, the Beatles crooner, the irrepressible encourager, a prince of preachers, a matchless Bible teacher, the man who made everyone feel special to the point that you wondered if you really were special if everybody was so dang special. <laughs> The Malawian missionary with a heart as large and warm as the country itself. Or the man who was born to be the husband to Sherry Love. Which is how he pronounced it to me every time. <laughs> to the point that's what I think, which is kind of weird. That when I see Sherry, I think, there she is. Sherry Love. And father to J.C. and Justin. Though he was all of the above, alas, that's what Mark was to us. But to God, he was more. To God, he was a son and a king and a priest and an ambassador of heaven. He was, in a phrase, the clearest example that I have ever been given of a saint who through faith in the word of God was able to put off the old man and put on Jesus Christ, allowing the word of God to dwell in him richly and in all wisdom from faith to faith, from day to day. Having Christ be so formed in him that he will continue to remind us that life passes but character is permanent. That youth and vigor dissolve, minds and bodies decay, but that which is done remains. Through the ages of time and eternity, 
what you have done for God after salvation, that and that alone you are. Deeds never die. And what are we now left to say with respect to this strange and solemn reserve we call time? Only that most do with it through wickedness and selfishness and idleness and pragmatism what the disciples did with one wasted and irreclamable hour in Gethsemane. They sleep. Yet there are a scant few glorious exceptions to the rule who redeem time. Mark's life reminds us what makes life many, mighty through its many trials, worthy in its smallest deeds, and what salvages it from monotony and meaninglessness. That forgetting the things that are behind and pressing forward to the things which are before, we can access that divine grace which allows us to be content as a tool for the master's use, saying with earnest within our hearts, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. We are all getting too soon old. Don't waste the investment into you that is the privilege of having been ministered to by Mark Trotter. Don't be too late smart. Mark Trotter was a discipler of men, loving his family equally and loving the bride of Christ with unparalleled selflessness. But without question, I feel I would be remiss if I did not say this. His chief disciple in life was Justin Trotter. And Justin, like the gospel itself, bro, you have an unspeakable privilege and an incredible responsibility to carry a mantle that is only yours. Other men have tried to mimic it They've tried to reproduce it, but it's yours and yours alone. And I know that you don't need to be told this, bro. But in the spirit of everybody rooting for you, we know that you are going to be about your father's business, bro. Of, on behalf of the family, I just I want to thank you guys so much for being here. I know there's so many of y'all that have come from so far and have sacrificed so much to be here, and, and I know there are so many other folks that wanted to be here that are watching online, and, and we're just really blessed to have friends like you guys, really, we feel incredibly blessed so we we thank you for the way that y'all have loved on us and i thank you for loving my dad the way that you do someone could someone could act like a complete idiot half the time but if you love my dad me and you are going to be friends
It's almost like if we had that in common, we had all things in common. But having the opportunity to stand up here and, and to honor my dad and to, and to celebrate his life is the biggest privilege of my life. Like Justin had mentioned earlier, I, I've been asked lots of times, what's it like to be Mark Trotter's son? And, and I've always responded the same way. You know how great of a preacher and a pastor he is? He's an even better dad. But he wasn't just my dad. He was, he was my hero. <laughs> he was my best friend. He was my discipler. We had, the most, we had the closest and most special father-son relationship that I've ever seen. And, and I, I can't put into words how much I loved and admired and respected him. And because of that incredible love in life, it seems to be that much more painful in death. There have been moments where I've, I felt like I might be the most broken-hearted dude on the planet. I've definitely had I've definitely had some moments where I've questioned God on that level. The grief and the frustration and just questioning why God couldn't have given me more time with my dad. And then I had to step back and realize that for almost 40 years. I was blessed with the best dad in the world. And that's 40 years longer than most people get. I, I will tell you, though, that God has shown up in an indescribable way, and, and he has shown up big, and his grace has been sufficient. And my mom and my sister have been rock stars, and they've been women of faith. And through this whole... Uh, through this whole ordeal, he, he is going to be missed on levels that I didn't know existed. And one of the things that I'm going to miss most about my dad is his preaching. And I know most of y'all are familiar with my dad's preaching. And if you're familiar with my dad's preaching, you'll know that he spent a lot of time talking about the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, one of the things that he's most well-known for, and a lot of you will remember, is his dramatic monologue of the judgment seat of Christ, where the one where he named his character Daniel James Mathewson. So when I think about what my earthly father would have wanted and what would be most honoring to my heavenly father, I can't help but think that one of the best ways to honor my dad is for there to be some preaching about the judgment seat of Christ at his funeral. And certainly it's hard to imagine a setting that's more fitting for us to talk about the judgment seat of Christ as we face the gravity of the reality that every single one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account for the things that we did in our body, just like 2 Corinthians 5.10 says. See, this is going to be the ultimate accounting of our stewardship. What God has entrusted to us as stewards, we will give 
and account for at the judgment seat of Christ. And let me ask you this. How incredible would it be if we could get some insight into the way that things would soon be shaken out for my dad in heaven? And of course, we realize that applies to us as well, and it's only a matter of time before we all have finished our course too. What if we knew the questions that will be asked at my dad's accounting at the judgment seat of Christ? What if there was somewhere in the Bible that we could maybe glean some insight into the questions that we could expect to be asked by our Lord? And that's what I want us to look at in a seemingly strange place, which is Job chapter 26. And we're going to see that there's actually a place in the Bible where it's almost as if God gives us the test questions before the test. But before we look at that, I want to show you how we do the math to understand what this passage is actually talking about. And we don't have a lot of time for me to set this up, but if you know anything about my dad, there's no way we'd be honoring his life today if we didn't establish the context of the passage <laughs> like my dad has been teaching his entire ministry. So three of the most important factors of establishing the context of Scripture, or right divisions, if you will, are time, people, and application. And it just so happens that th these three divisions break down into threes, like so, uh, so many other things that we see in creation. So time, of course, is past, present, and future. And the three groups of people whom Scripture addresses are the Gentiles, the church, and the Jews. And the three applications of Scripture are the historical, the devotional, and the doctrinal. And as we align these division groups, they kind of serve as an acrostic that we can essentially overlay on top of this passage in Job. In other words, as we go to the book of Job today, the past application applies to the Gentile. Historically, this happened to Job. What we see in Job happened to Job, who was a Gentile. And I know it's debatable whether or not Job lived before Abraham was born, but it's undeniable that he was not of Abraham's bloodline, meaning he was most certainly a Gentile. And the future application of the book of Job applies to Israel. And I know a lot of us are familiar with that one. So doctrinally, it's understood that Job is a type or a picture of the Jew in the tribulation, which leaves the present application to the church, which means there is most definitely a devotional application to the church in the book of Job, and I want us to see what that is as we work our way towards this passage in Job 26, because first we need to see a few things that are going on in chapter 19. It's going to help us better understand what's going on in chapter 26, and I understand you may not have your Bible, so feel free to listen as we look at Job 19 to set the context for what's going on in 26. Job says, Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do you persecute me as God and, not, and are not satisfied with my flesh? O oh, that my words were now written. 
Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But ye should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, for the wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. So in the middle of this discourse with these so-called friends, and without Job having one page of the Bible, Job begins to reference a book with words graven with an iron pen that lasts forever. Does that sound like any book that y'all are familiar with? We also see the first reference in the Bible to the Redeemer, which we know to be a reference to none other than Jesus Christ. And Job says that his eyes will behold this Redeemer in the flesh after his physical body dies. So he already understands the concept of getting new glorified bodies. And in the last verse of the chapter, we see a reference to a judgment. And we know the judgment right after we see our glorified bodies to be the judgment seat of Christ. So that brings us to the six questions that I want us to see in Job 26 that I believe to be the questions that every believer in Jesus Christ will be answering in what most likely will be the very near future unless the Lord tarries, which I don't think he will. And what I want to do as we go through these questions is to use these questions as a kind of framework to honor my dad and to look at how he might do when being asked these questions at the judgment seat of Christ, while hopefully pose a challenge to those of us that are here today as we each get one day closer to our ultimate accounting at the judgment seat of Christ. So here it is. Feel free to look at it if you'd like, or feel free to listen. Job 26 one through four. But Job answered and said, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? How hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom hast thou uttered words? And whose spirit came from thee? So let's look at the first question that's asked. How hast thou helped him that is without power? Well, who is it that is without power? And Romans 1.16 teaches us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So unbelievers are without power because they're without God. So we see that the question being asked is linked to evangelism. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, who will be there because of us? And to get an idea of how I believe my father will do on this question, I wanted to tell you a story about his battle with cancer. So through this entire process, my dad was just, he was rock solid the entire time. At no point did I ever see him waver. At no point did I ever, even I never saw him afraid. It would be okay to be afraid. I just never saw it if he was. 
And there's only one time that I saw him cry. I'm sure there were others. There was only one time that I saw it. I was sitting with him in my folks' living room, and I was expressing my concern for what was going on with his health. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, But Judd, if if through this situation people come to Christ, it'll all be worth it. There was another time, and this was before his first bladder surgery, and, and going into that surgery, we had yet to hear if the cancer was anywhere else. We were kind of going in blind. We knew it was in the bladder, and they were going to do surgery to get some of that out, but we weren't sure if it was in the rest of the body, and so we were actually kind of fearing the worst, at least I was, and, uh, and the surgery was early in the morning, and we were driving, and uh, it was still dark, and my dad said, you know, we need to make sure we're being good stewards with this. And I was thinking, a good steward of what? <laughs> I'd never, I, I understood being a good steward of the blessings that God had entrusted us with. But it never crossed my mind to be a good steward <laughs> of the bad. And I sat there truly in awe of the faith of my father and the perspective that he had, hoping that God could use this to further the gospel. And because the judgment seat of Christ is the ultimate accounting of our stewardship, I I, I realized that even in the midst of life and death situations, my dad was focused on the accounting that he was going to give at the judgment seat for how he used every circumstance to further the gospel. And he continued to quote and text us Acts 20, 24, which says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So my dad's entire life was lived focused on the Great Commission, even up until his last breath. So what about us? With the lateness of the hour, my friends, and with the reminders all around us that life is a vapor, at what point will we get serious and intentional about sharing the love of God with the powerless before it's too late? What will it take to get us to realize how real this thing is? Souls are literally hanging in the balances every day. How could we withhold this information from the powerless that are around us? And with that said, if you ended up here today and you've never experienced salvation and you've never confessed the fact that you're a sinner that's in need of a Savior and acknowledged that Jesus was God in human flesh, that humbled himself as a man, he was 100% man and 100% God, and he died our death on the cross so that we might live. It should have been us hanging there. You see, because God is holy, there had to be a penalty for sin. But because God is love, he paid the price for us. And now he simply asks for us to put our faith and trust in the one 
who died for us on the cross. If there's even one person here today who's never done that, could I ask you what it could possibly be that would stop you from nailing that down today? Today could be the day that you lay hold on eternal life. Oh, I encourage you to take, that, take care of that before we leave today, if that's you. All right, so we see that the first question that we'll be asked at the judgment seat of Christ has to do with evangelism. And as we continue reading Job 26, we see that the second question we'll be asked at the judgment seat is, How savest thou the arm that has no strength? Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, we know that the arm is a member of the body. And 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that as believers, we are the body of Christ. So when we're asked, how savest the arm that has no strength, we'll essentially be being asked, how have we helped the members of the body of Christ? And as we think about my dad being faced with this question, this was something my dad was passionate about. In fact, over the course of about the last five years, he'd, he had restructured, restructured his life and his ministry around a few different things, one of which being pastoring pastors. And I know that there's a lot of brothers in my room who were recipients of this very intentional investment of what sadly tends to be a rare trusted advisor in the life of a pastor. And my dad was passionate about pastoring pastors, but he didn't just invest in pastors, for the vast majority of a guy you couldn't find, you, for the vast majority of his ministry, you couldn't find a guy discipling more than he was, training others to disciple, going to churches all over the world to train them how to be a disciple-making church. You literally can't talk about my dad's ministry <clears throat> without talking about discipleship. And so I want us to ask ourselves today, who am I investing my life in? We won't all pastor pastors, I understand that, but we can all disciple. Are we pocketing the blessing of salvation without being responsible for the mission that God gave us? What are we investing our time in that's so important that leaves us no time? to do the things that God so clearly called us to do. One of my dad's most well-known sermons was called, Whatever Happened to Just Going For It? And I want to ask, whatever happened to just going for it? <clears throat> and I fear we just don't go for it because there's too many other things that we're going for that have nothing to do with the mission that God left us. And as we continue looking at Job 26, we see the third question in verse 3 that we need to prepare for <clears throat> at the judgment seat of Christ. And that question is, <clears throat> how hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? So first we talked about unbelievers with no power. Second, we talked about the saved with no strength. <clears throat> and third, we're talking about people in general without wisdom. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9 teaches us about man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And of course, we know that God's wisdom is found in his word. 
And we know that because we have the Bible in our hands, we actually have the very mind of Christ and have access to the wisdom of God. And as we consider this question being posed to my dad, I'd like to tell you a story. I had my dad write a quote of his on a piece of paper for me about 10 years ago. And I had taped it on the mirror in my bathroom so that I could see it when I was getting ready in the morning. And later I ended up framing it and putting it in my office. But, but here's what it said. Pray that God will allow you to see today the way you will see it when you give an account for it at the judgment seat of Christ. You will see it then the way he sees it now. Seeing life now the way we will see it then is what is wrapped up in the biblical concept of wisdom. For all practical purpose, purposes, wisdom is simply seeing life from God's perspective. And my dad saw life from this perspective, so as a result, he invested that wisdom into so many people in so many ways. But one of the ways that I'm so thankful for that God was able to use him in the last few years of his life was through his books. And he was in the middle of others. Um, and those books were, they, they were just packed with godly wisdom and counsel. And I, I remember being so excited when the first one came out. I wanted him to sign it for me. And, and, and he wrote me a note in the book that he gave me. And I want to share a portion of that note that he wrote, with, wrote to me. And he, and he wrote me a, a few kind words. <clears throat> And then he wrote me something that just hit me so hard. And here's what he said. I hope you hear my voice in this resource long after I'm gone. And that it will cause you to always hear and follow the master's voice. Couldn't love you more. What a blessing to be able to have that his voice lives on in all those he invested in that will also invest it in others. And it lives on in his writings and it lives on in his sermons. And, and I understand that not everybody's called to preach or write books. But I want us to all take a second to think about how we'll answer this question when we get to the judgment seat of Christ. Who did we share the wisdom from above with? Who have we counseled? Maybe the better question is, who would be willing to come to us to seek counsel after watching the conversation of our lives? May we prepare for this question at the judgment seat of Christ. And then the fourth question we want to use to prepare us for the judgment seat of Christ. How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? And my dad most certainly plentifully declared the truth as it is. He never shied away from the truth, but he was a defender of the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4 teaches us to preach the word Be instant, in season, 
out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned to fables. And I can assure you that time that Paul is writing to Timothy about is now. And my dad is probably most well-known for the way he did exactly as those verses say. He passionately preached the word. He unashamedly preached it when it was cool and when it wasn't so cool anymore. His preaching was always reproving and rebuking, but it was still always exhorting and long-suffering. Though it was convicting, it didn't leave you in a heap, but it always gave hope. And he rightly divided the word of truth and studied like crazy to show himself approved unto God so he could be sure to always teach us sound doctrine. The same doctrine he was preaching back in the 90s was the same doctrine he preached until he finished his course never wavering. When I was a kid, my dad made a deal with me. And if you've heard my dad preach when I was there, you've probably heard this story. He told me, buddy, I'll always come to your basketball games if you come to my sermons. So I said, it's a deal, dad. And eventually those basketball games ended, but the sermons didn't. But the rest of my life, if there was any way possible for me to be there, you better believe it, buddy, I was there. And I didn't just do it because the deal we made when, we, when I was a kid. I did it because to me it was the best preaching I'd ever heard. Because I loved it. I loved him. I geeked out on my dad's sermons, man, especially the older I got. I was on the edge of my seat like I was at a sporting again. I felt like I was a kid again, and I was sitting courtside watching the Bulls in the 90s. <laughs> but because of that deal we made when I was a kid, we always played off of that. And we always said the same thing to each other after one of his sermons. He'd, he'd always, he always said... Thanks for coming to my game. <laughs> and I'd say, thanks for dropping fitty. <laughs> I'd say, you're the goat, Dad. If you don't know what that means, that actually is a really big compliment, even though it may not sound like it. <laughs> but man, I've just never met anyone more passionate or more in love with the Word of God. It was as if the more in love... With the word, he became the more passionate he preached. And as the story goes, though he was always a gifted communicator, he became the preacher that we think of today when he became convinced that the book that he held in his hand was the inspired, inerrant word of God that has been preserved for us on this planet in our own language in the King James Version of the Bible. And he would tell the story the same way. He'd tell you that having that faith-based view of the Bible changed things for him. And he fell in love with the Word of God like never before. 
And I believe that God entrusted to him and laid on his shoulder what we refer to biblically as the key of David, which the Bible says opens doors no man can shut and shuts doors no man can open. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture to understand what this key really is, we have to understand what it was that made David the man after God's own heart and why the key was named after him. And as you begin to study that out, and especially as we read the Psalms, what we find is that, interestingly enough, David doesn't talk a whole lot about being in love with God. But he can't seem to stop talking about the love he has for the Word of God. And my dad understood that. He understood that you can't separate the Word of God from the person of God. Everything that's true about one is true of the other. You can't love God without loving his word. And he fell in love with the word of God. And because of that, God was able to use him in an incredible way all over the world. And I get it. Not everyone is called to preach. But who are we telling the thing as it is? Who is it that we're loving enough to actually tell them the truth in love? You can't have true love without truth. And as we continue looking at the questions we'll be asked at the judgment seat of Christ, we see the fifth question we'll be asked from Job 26.4 is, To whom hast thou uttered words? And Philippians 1.27 teaches us that we're only to let our conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So who did my dad utter words to? And and I want to draw our attention to the negative side of this question. Matthew 12, 36 teaches us that we'll give an account for every idle word in the day of judgment. You see, there are some words that God doesn't want us to speak. And my dad understood this. As you guys can imagine, just like everyone, sometimes my dad wasn't treated fairly. And any time I watched anyone mischaracterize or blame or mistreat my dad which again I know we've all had those experiences I never saw him react I never saw him lash out I never saw him defend himself in fact I'm pretty sure I've watched him apologize for a lot of things he didn't even do and when I used to talk to him about things like that he always used to tell me don't worry about it buddy It's all going to get sorted out at the judgment seat of Christ. And as we seek to apply this to ourselves, I want us to ask ourselves, who who have we uttered words to that God didn't want us to speak? And it could possibly be as severe as the question as, who's not here because of us? And certainly that's a sobering thought, but it's one I'd like for us to consider. And finally, the sixth question we want to ask ourselves as we prepare for the judgment seat of Christ is, and whose spirit came from thee? And we know that biblically there are three spirits. 1 Corinthians 2.11 teaches us about the spirit of man or the human spirit. Revelation 16.13, we learn about the unclean spirit In Galatians 5, 16, we learn about the Holy Spirit. And we need to be prepared to answer the question, 
whose spirit came from us. And based on the teachings of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I have no doubt that my dad was able to answer that the spirit that came from him was the Holy Spirit because his life was characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. In fact, the concept of walking in the Spirit is, is a topic that came up regularly in his sermons, and I can tell you it's definitely something we talked a lot about behind closed doors, too. See, with, with, without getting into all the details, the, the way things shook out in the last days of, of my dad's life, we, we didn't really get to have last words with him. But as Justin mentioned, and as he told us in person all through the years, if he's on his deathbed and he can muster out four more words, he'd tell us to walk in the Spirit. Little did any of us know that, unfortunately, we wouldn't get any last words with my dad, but what a blessing it is that we already had him. But that's how serious my dad was about the spirit that came from him. And I, and I want to challenge us to, to take a look in the mirror and to honestly consider what spirit is it that comes from us that characterizes our lives. And as we've gone through these six questions, I... I hope it's been challenging while at the same time celebrating the life of a man that I always thought was the greatest dad, husband, and pastor that there ever was. But now my dad has finished his course. And he'll no doubt hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But what are we going to do with the investment that he made in our lives and the example that he set for our lives? To whom much is given, much is required. For God's glory's sake, may we live our lives in preparation for the questions that we'll be faced with at the judgment seat of Christ. So that we can approach it like my dad and we can fight a good fight, keep the faith, and bring the Lord the maximum glory in our lives. The Savior of the world was born. His body on the cross, His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon Him. Ooh, 
heaven looked away, the Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated forever. not be overcome. Now, now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated. Come on, worship forever. He is glorified forever. He is You're alive. My Savior and your Savior lives. Do I have any witnesses? He lives. Oh, hallelujah. He lives. So we stand here. Oh, we sing. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. Come on, we're going to give God the highest praise. Give him the highest praise. Lord, you're worthy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sing hallelujah. Sing hallelujah. For Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. So we praise you, we praise you, we praise you. Sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. Yeah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah, the Lamb, the Lamb is overcome, sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, somebody sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, 
participating and celebrating Mark's life with us today. And as Justin reminded us, Mark had a theme and, and he did always, in fact, he had several messages, but he, he would talk about finishing his course and that everybody had their own course for their life and that they had to finish. And it's been quoted already, but I, I want to continue to read the next verse down from 2 Timothy 4. Like the Apostle Paul, I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And Mark did that, and he would admonish us to do that. Because there's the next verse that says, henceforth. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And I'm sure that Mark would want for all of us to finish our courses, keeping the faith fighting the good fight. And all the church said, amen. amen. Well, this concludes our service today, and I just want to give you some instructions as to how we're going to proceed from here as we exit. The staff from GIBE is going to come and escort the family out. And then afterwards, they're going to come and begin to dismiss us. If you are planning to join us for the procession to the graveside, uh, you're going to need to make sure that your vehicle has the bright lights on and the hazards on before we ever leave the parking lot here. And there'll be guide staff outside ensuring that everybody's lights and hazards are on before we're able to um, begin that procession. Um, if you're not going to be a part of the procession, then we'd like to ask you to just wait in your cars until the procession is able to leave the parking lot and, um, and, and just patiently wait until that's done. That, that shouldn't take too long. So um, we're going to ask that the pallbearers please stand um, who are going to then escort the casket out. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.